Hello, welcome. My name is Neha Vasakha and I'm the host of the podcast series The Feminist City. This is offered by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy and in the series we think about cities, our relationships with the city and exclusions in the city. And I'm very happy to present today's episode where I will be talking to Dr. Shilpa Fadke. Dr. Shilpa Fadke is an associate professor at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences Mumbai. Her research interests include gender in the politics of space, sexuality in the body, the middle classes, feminist politics amongst young women, feminist parenting and pedagogic practices. If you have been uh, listening to this podcast, you would have already heard the name of the book Why Loiter Women at Risk on Mumbai Streets which she has co-authored and I'm extremely excited to be bringing her uh, to speak to me and to us about her work and basically i mean what i would say is um i've been a fan of dr fadke's work for a long time and her academic papers are a treat to read so with that uh thank you so much dr fadke for coming here thank you sneha i'm delighted to be here yeah it is it's a huge honor and i'm going to do my best <laughs> to you know control my excitement so um just to start off with this conversation uh i think yeah. what i'd like to the first question i think i would like to ask you is you and your co-authors had written while loiter almost a decade ago and recently i think you've commented as well as you know with the way in which women's safety is now it seems to be a quintessential recurring question and it's come up again with recent proposals um where in madhya pradesh and uttar pradesh governments are floating ideas of surveillance using ai and asking women to register at police stations for their protection which is also sort of happening at a time where young women across the country are being targeted for political activity so i was just curious to hear what do you think of why loiter and the arguments you made about paternalistic protectionism and women's access to the city and you know the violence of normal times as you so poignantly put it in your writing so so yeah i mean that's i feel like you're asking a deeply contemporary and deeply relevant question to the moment that we find ourselves in and our book is actually exactly one decade old so this month uh, it is 10 years the book is 10 years old and in wow. some ways we find yeah we find ourselves in in a space where nothing seems to have changed uh i'd say the the mainstream discourse or the or the feminist sorry not the mainstream the feminist discourse on access to the public has transformed significantly but in terms of the space we find ourselves navigating in some ways things have become considerably more restrictive if you like and and the proposals that you suggest and the and the uh, the the proposal put put forward by the chief minister of madhya pradesh the suggestion even the throwaway suggestion that women would have to report at a police station so that they could be tracked is deeply deeply alarming i think this idea that surveillance is uh is what would provide safety and one of the things we've argued in the book and i think it's never more true than now is that protectionism never never provides access that protectionism however benevolent however well meant eventually only puts up boundaries only puts up walls uh and restricts women's movement in very very uh particular ways so and responding also to the ways in which young women are being uh picked up are being arrested i think the la- again one year ago uh, the anti caa protests so women young women old women women across religion at the forefront of these protests and i think that in some sense yeah. it was uh, the culmination of decades of of women's uh activism in in relation to access to the public that here you had women leading protests as citizens and protests for citizenship in many ways and i think that that is something that yes. was deeply unsettling if you remember the chief a person no less than the chief justice of india recently remarked in relation to the farmers protest in relation to petitions that were being heard in the supreme court uh, in regard to the farmers protest that there was no need for women and old people to be kept in these protests uh this itself suggests the yes. deep anxiety 
you know about the presence of women in public as protesters and as citizens and this comment immediately underscores that women's proper place is in the home right the home which also does not belong to them yeah. in many ways that then the the anxiety of women as citizens as agents mounting an embodied protest right the bodies of women which should more properly be located in the home now being in absolutely, public absolutely absolutely and as you were speaking i was also thinking about how yeah i mean it's been a year but during the cnrc protests it was it was so many young women young trans people young non binary people even within i think it was actually in bombay where they were picked up after you know the queer pride parade and were targeted by the state for i don't know carrying play cards and talking about political questions which also is interesting because i think some of even you know th- lately there is also a depoliticization of certain you know even queer pride as a, as a form which is a protest where we are all only supposed to talk about our issues we are not supposed to talk about anything else that you know happens in the country and i was actually curious how you would link this to what you call the violence of normal times in terms of how do we understand what we have to give up if we then you know uh, subscribe to the protectionist narrative of the state because what are the things that women are supposed to be giving up in order to be safe in the city you know quote unquote both the protectionist narrative and as you pointed out the neoliberal narrative of individualism right that for instance in a pride you should only be able to discuss your little individual uh, sort of middle class issues of queerness or whatever it is and do not venture into uh into the larger political space right uh which then de- yeah. exactly as you pointed out in your question it depoliticizes the issue of queerness entirely because a lot of queer struggles feminist struggles are about being linked to other struggles right whether it's the environmental struggle whether it's the farmer struggle or the adivasi struggle um we are seeing now that even uh even movements in relation to the environment movements for climate change are being t- the targeted and one of the messages that seem to be going out by by uh, jailing young people by arresting them on charges which surely are not going to be able to stand in a court right that because there are there is no charge there is no legal yeah. basis to the charge being made is the is to generate a kind of anxiety right uh, keep quiet or else and i think that there is there is a message being sent particularly to young people who seem to be at the forefront of these struggles uh, whether it's in the pride where again young people were picked up or it's in relation to simply editing a document online right uh, where 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 you know a climate change activist can be can be picked up on on no grounds really you know one won't even say flimsy grounds there are no grounds for for this kind of arrest so so when we see when we see this it's it's very much uh, so to connect this to the larger or to the ongoing a uh, struggle uh, that women have been engaged in uh, for the right to public space a lot of this then is about uh, the kinds of visibility you may be allowed right uh and and it's one of the things we articulated in our book as well again it's this kind of you can be a consumer and you can be an employee but you mustn't get involved in in other kinds of politics of visibility so do not demand demand rights as a citizen you can only be consumer and i think i think that we do need to connect this both to the kind of anti democratic environment we find ourselves in today and the neoliberal space that we find ourselves in in today absolutely i mean um one of the things that really stood out to me in your book was also where you link the privatization of the city and and you know the public public space and public private space because when i talk to my friends and recently i asked somebody okay um where can you go out which is a public public space where you don't have to pay money where you don't have to you know where it's free and open and we we couldn't really come up with too many places because it's almost like a public space as an open space where free entry and everybody is welcomed almost seems to have vanished and yeah. what like i would love to hear you know because i think the consumer and we as consumptive uh, you know uh, subjects of the country rather than 
citizens with fundamental freedoms and rights seems to be you know because it's almost like freedom to consume but not freedom to i don't know protest or demand is yeah is the case right now and uh, the other the, the second question that i sort of wanted to ask is linked to both of these questions one is the shrinking of public space and two is the way in which safety narratives often mask moral panics around as you call them you know undesirable um liaisons with across caste class sexuality lines right and we've also seen the passage of really dangerous laws with the fig leaf of anti conversion that is blatantly being used to target young couples especially young interreligious couples intercaste couples and you know valentines day was just around the corner i was curious about because you talk about this the right for pleasure in the city so could you just comment on that yeah absolutely i mean and and to start off with the, the valentines day the valentines day is something that uh, feminist activists and advocates for many years have critiqued right critiqued as being neoliberal as tied in practices of consumption and it's so it's deeply ironic in many ways that in the last few years we have found ourselves defending precisely this kind of right to romantic love because now even this right a right which at one level is deeply individualistic is also under siege you know so we we all we all laugh when we when we sort of you know put out uh, social media posts defending valentines day because 20 years ago we were out there sort of critiquing it uh, and so one has traversed a, a, la- a very long distance i think in those years and not in a good i and certainly not in a in a good way uh, to to rehearse the arguments you point out from from our book one of the things we realized very very uh, sort of po- uh, sharply was that the anxiety about access to public space for women particularly from the perspective of families and communities was uh, was certainly partly about women being attacked uh, by strangers and it's always about strangers right it's never about people you know because the same fa- fa- families will often refuse to uh, to uh, acknowledge or even if they acknowledge not do anything when when you're harassed by people within the family by neighbors they want to silence it they don't want to address questions of incest and so on so it's always about strangers but coming back to that question so the anxiety is partly that you will be attacked by strangers but just as much the anxiety is that you will uh, form consensual relationships with unsuitable men which as you pointed out in your question men of the wrong class men of the wrong caste men of the wrong religion uh, just just or even in in more conservative setups just men your family have not chosen for you because the question really is not about consent right families have very very little problem about ma- marrying you off to strangers whom they have chosen right and in our country also there is no law against ma- marital rape so it's not about women's consent mm-hmm. at all it is really about uh, familial control of female sexuality and and to come come to this question of sort of love jihad which one needs to repeat over and over again is is a bogey right uh there has been no single proven yeah. case of love jihad not a single one you know even the ones that were put out as cases turned out to be fake right they turned out to be fabricated cases so uh and and the and yes. the and the ordinance the uttar pradesh ordinance that you refer to right which under the guise of conversion seeks to control who young people can be and if you remember there was that one case where a young college couple went out to eat a pizza they went to a restaurant to eat a pizza and this young muslim boy was picked up right i mean they were not marrying they were not doing anything they went out to eat a pizza so a lot of it is simply about uh, about controlling who and and they are also very very islamophobic in nature right they are about pointing to muslims in this country that they are second class citizens and it is i think it is a deeply divisive and increasingly terrifying agenda uh this this kind of thing that is targeted at at the muslim community in this country and i feel like it's important for us to 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 say that to point it out and 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 to continuously raise our voices against it because that too is tied to to this vision of who our women are who must then be protected from from their men if you like absolutely um yeah yeah in a sense
you're absolutely right and i think it also ties down to the question i think you've addressed this in your book and you know other places as well and even we like when we look at the law um the fact that the marital rape exemption continues to persist or the fact that domestic violence is much much higher than actually i mean the the biggest i mean study after study that shows that i mean women are murdered in their families at a much higher rate than they are subject to any kind of violence in the public streets and when we think about safety for women in the city the focus suddenly becomes public spaces but what about the homes inside the city that you know women are being subjected to violence in so the question that i think i would come back to i mean one the other point i just wanted to add to what you said is that i think islamophobia has always persisted in indian society but recently it's the state legitimacy it's the legitimacy that has now been given and it's become state policy so to speak in order to uh, use now the machinery of the state to perpetuate something of this kind and we move so far away from constitutional morality now we no longer think of ourselves as indians yeah and 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 draw our morality from the constitution and it's 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 in such a regressive step where we move back to parochial religious and you know caste based standards and in this context i think the last question about safety in particular that i wanted you to address is one of my favorite papers is the one you've written about desexualizing risk and where you talk about the right to risk and then you talk about why the 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 excessive emphasis that's laid on sexual safety as opposed to just safety and well-being for women across psychological physical and other kinds of non-sexual violence is part of this paternalistic logic i would like i would love for you to talk to me a little bit about that and just explain why what actually makes women safer whether at home or in the city uh i i should start by saying that that in in my argument about uh, sort of sexual violence and the need to need to see it along a spectrum of other kinds of violence i draw a great deal on nivedita menen's work in this regard you know and uh, and this whole idea that somehow sexual violence is seen to be so much worse than other kinds of violence and that's that's again tied to a variety of things right it's tied to the idea that sexuality is the core of who you are it's tied it's tied to anxieties about uh, sexual and reproductive control of women uh, and it's tied it's tied to the notion of honor right that if somebody is murdered yeah. their honor is not besmirched but if they are they are sexually assaulted if they are raped then their honor is besmirched and one one of the arguments i often use one of the examples i often use in a class in relation to risk is to say that if i walk out onto the road at midnight and i get hit by a bus and i break a leg then various kinds of legal and medical processes will apply as a matter of course but if i walk out onto the street at midnight and i get sexually assaulted before any medical or legal processes both of which are required can apply i will be asked what i was doing there whom i was with what i was wearing and why i needed to be there at all right and i think this really is the core of why sexual violence somehow is seen as a as an act of violence apart from other kinds of violence including that of murder and one of the things that uh, that flavia agnes feminist lawyer flavia agnes has always said in a variety of situations she said that women are often trained how to avoid rape and she says nobody trains women how to survive rape she says that you're often told all the things you must do to avoid getting raped and she says that you're also fitted in with this mentality that rape is somehow a fate worse than death and she says in fact of course it is not right so if you find yourself in a situation you should also be taught how to survive with the minimum number of injury with the minimum kind of violence upon your upon your person and uh, so coming coming back to to your question uh i think it's important for us to see sexual violence along a, a spectrum of violence and somehow not see it as if we can delink it from honor if we can delink it from this strange idea of izzat you know that somehow something about you is violated yeah. that other crimes do not violate i think we might find ourselves in a different space in terms of what would keep women safe one of the things we say in our book really is that 
that safety is again a a a, a kind of a, a a goal that obscures other kinds of issues it it suggests to you that it's something that's achievable where in many ways there is no safe space right you could you could shower in your bathroom and slip and fall right so your bathroom is not safe so you could i mean you know you could be walking on the road and you could slip and fall and break a leg so really the goal has to be about access and if we see access not safety as our goal because like you pointed out the home is not safe in fact for women across the world the home is the most unsafe space the greatest amount of violence against women takes place in the private space of the home and is perpetrated by people known to women right so and that nobody tells women don't stay yeah. at home in fact we urge them to be in this very space so really safety is is a is a uh, it's a it uh, it stops us from from seeing the real issues the real issue has to be access the real issue has to be consent and the ways in which i mean as we argue in our book one of the ways in which women might have greater access is if we ask for access for everybody because it is only when all citizens have access can women claim unconditional access and one of the things we were thinking about sort of 10 years from the book uh, we we argue this in a chapter we call unbelongers and and we were looking at the unbelongers chapter re, 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 recently for an event that we are doing we were thinking of reading some lines from it and it's quite it's quite stark to think that the lines of division are very much worse now than they were in 2011 when the book was published and certainly very much worse than uh, between 2002 and 2006 uh, 2003 and 2006 when we were researching Uh, when we were researching the book so i think yeah. that uh, yeah i mean i don't know if i've responded to your question but really what women need is both uh, to reiterate the argument we made in the book both the right to claim risk that is not that i should never be attacked because no space is safe but that when i do access public space yeah. nobody should question my right to be there and two that not just women but all marginal citizens including those who are seen to be not friendly to women should also have access to the public absolutely absolutely no that's thank you so much for saying that a lot of my research draw drew heavily on your book which is why i well, because one of the things that i was also reading and i i i realized even in in as you were speaking i was thinking about is it's also legitimate forms of violence and illegitimate forms of violence right like if you're beaten up at home that's okay your father's hitting you or your husband's hitting you so there are there is violence that women are supposed to live with and condone uh, and i think it also comes in the context of a brahmanical patriarchy in this country with with because i think uh, sometimes i think it's 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 probably because we're not taught women's history history is just they teach us men's history in college or schools or wherever we're not taught women's history it's i sometimes i think when i'm reading some of these texts it's shocking to me that women didn't have the right to vote in parts of the world until recently women were not considered to be human beings uh, until like you know a couple of centuries ago and the, these were questions that and we see the remnants i think because i studied law and legal history you know that there's a doctrine of coercion where on marriage in british law women's identity was subsumed under the man's or you know on the the exemption for marital rape is explained as oh you consented at the time of marriage so that consent holds through the course of the marriage but you see the same logics that persist and recently i was also horrified because i was reading radha kumar's book on history of doing and she talks about how uh, police wouldn't file cases at a time where dowry deaths were ramp tens and thousands of women were being burnt alive in their homes and it was seen as a private matter and it's almost as if throughout all of this time the notions of what is the violence you have to normalize and naturalize what is the violence that is wrong and has to have such extremely punitive punishment so you have death penalty you have all these you know like really really high carceral punishments for women's safety but you know that it it continues that that kind of uh, legitimacy and illegitimacy around that question which yeah i think sort of came out to me when you were talking yeah you're absolutely absolutely right that certain forms of 
unstructured violence, so this violence by strangers particularly, receive huge attention. So even if we look at news media, uh, somehow, uh, and one of the things we say in the book is that while, of course, it's important that sexual assault is reported and, and you know, it's not as if we are suggesting it should not be reported, the language in which it is reported often produces uh, anxiety right it says fear stalks the city uh the city is dangerous for women after dark you know so what it does is and and one of the things we found in our workshops particularly with young women and we did a lot of them is that every time there was a widely publicized assault what young women would express was the fear not that they will be attacked but the fact that this this reportage or that this incident would restrict their movements further that their families would say oh look what's happening outside you better not go outside you know so so there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of so there's unstructured violence which gets reported and which is seen as violence and then there's what you pointed out you know this structural violence so which is that i might go out late at night i might really have a brilliant time and and certainly in some cities in this country it is still possible so in bombay it's still possible to go out late at night i mean well not right now but at most times uh, to go out late at night have a good time and you might look over your shoulder and you might make a couple of calls and you'll be careful or whatever uh, and you'll produce safety for yourself in a variety of ways but it's possible but if you overshoot so if you are an 18 year old woman and you overshoot your curfew uh, when you go home uh, some form of violence is going to take place either you'll get shouted at or you'll get grounded or some form but that is never seen as violence right that is seen as protectionism concern and very often we call it love right so structured forms of violence are never called violence and women experience restrictions on their movement and their mobility and their access to public space as violence and this is something we really need to acknowledge and one of the things we say in our book and i think perhaps it's one of the lines i feel is like really really central to the argument of the book where we say that we need to start rethinking the way we see uh questions of safety to see not uh violence but lack of access to public space as the worst possible absolutely. outcome for women yeah absolutely i could not agree more you know so i feel like you know that we need to reframe the way we see this absolutely. yeah i mean you've touched upon something that i mean i think every young woman in this country experiences i've had so many fights with my parents to let me go out because when you grow up with a male sibling you immediately see around puberty the differential treatment in the home so you understand that you know he's not asked questions you are asked questions you're not supposed to go out he's supposed to go out and then that is never seen as anything because it's all done for your protection except these are also families i mean the strangest thing about india is in the name of honor killings families kill their own children because you've transgressed the lines of caste class and community in the in the form of marriage so it's often and, and which is why it was also really interesting to me to think about safety not just from a, a, from a perspective of protecting from sexual violence but also physical violence and emotional and psychological violence and we don't seem to have those conversations because they just don't seem big enough like if domestic violence or your parents are really harsh and you know critical about uh, curtailing your rights and if they're slut shaming you at home or and that's so common in our schools and in our colleges to tell women dress better decency you are you know and that shaming is constant and one of the things that i was really interested i think i, I was watching a webinar where samira khan was speaking and she talks about how there are these young women if their boyfriend is dropping them home they would get off much uh, earlier than they've come to their you know their home walk down a unlit lane because they don't want the neighbors to see so we actually are subjected to more unsafety because our families will punish us for yeah for i don't know being adults and exercising our basic rights so all of this that you say is underscored by victim blaming right that eventually women constantly imagine that should something happen they will be blamed for it and and like uh, like you're saying the, the example that samira gave from from our work is that women we found were far more concerned about their reputations than they were about 
producing physical safety for themselves that they would put their reputations before they would put physical safety and i actually want to go back to your earlier question on what would make uh, women safe uh, what would make actually young people safe and one of the things that i feel very strongly from my from my la- la- later work on on, on feminist uh, parenting uh, and just also looking at narratives of young people in public space i feel like one thing that would make young people safe is if their parents have their back that quite often couples particularly in public space are again shamed you know by police and and, and police in various cities at different times of the year will go on what they call anti obscenity drives and what do their anti obscenity drives often consist of picking up couples who are holding hands you know i mean this is this is their vision of what constitutes obscenity uh, and of course obscenity laws in our country are so vague that you know that it's possible for them to do that uh, and they often shame couples and particularly young women by saying shall we call your parents and the tragedy of this situation is that for those young people and particularly for those young women their parents are scarier than that policeman they really don't want that policeman to call their parents and so they are put in a very very vulnerable position and rendered very unsafe how much would change if these young people could say call my parents or to say my pa- i have already called my parents they are on their way here and if those parents turned up in that space and said you have no right to tell my adult child what to do you know my adult child is holding hands with another adult mm-hmm. and that's perfectly fine with me uh and uh, you should you should just stop mm-hmm. how much would transform for young people if their parents had or if their families i mean parents guardians elders anyone anyone who is a responsible adult in their lives if any responsible older adult in their lives simply had their backs i mean how much would change not just for women but for men for for all young people and i feel like i feel like this is something we need to be telling people uh telling parents of of young people you know that that they really need to Absolutely. even if they don't agree even if they hate what their children are doing if they care for their children's safety if they want to keep their children safe then yeah. they need to create a space where their children are not more afraid of them than they are of the outside world yeah i i mean uh, this was the next i mean i thank you so much for saying that i mean my mother listens to these podcasts and i've been having a lot of conversations with her around what does it mean to be safe what does it mean to want to wear what i want to wear and step out and and then we've been this, this is always an ongoing conversation where i've heard her say something like you know if you live in bangalore or delhi wear what you want don't do that in hyderabad where i'm from don't do that in this neighborhood because the people here don't understand so you have to be you know you have to belong in the neighborhood that you come from you have to you know and she says don't like you know don't don't stand out in any crowd it's it's always her worries has always been that and and i've often heard also like you know a lot of you know woke progressive men say you know women are more patriarchal than men women like mothers are the ones who actually teach their children you know it is like there is this this notion that oh but like they are women are women's worst enemies mothers actually teach the you know it's 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 very i mean it's always funny to me but i'm, I'm actually really interested in also asking you to talk to talk to us about what do you what do you talk what do you mean by feminist mothering or feminist parenting and i'd like to just contextualize it a little bit in the context where in this country often when anyone when i complain about law people ask oh what will actually solve the problem of sexual violence my answer has always been comprehensive sex education have comprehensive sex education do it from an intersectional feminist perspective actually talk to young children adults everybody at every level about psychosocial awareness just teaching people to manage their own emotions and giving them language to talk about their feelings and you know teach consent from a young age but we are a country that has such an overwhelming taboo over the word you know sex yet it's the country with the highest highest uh, levels of sexual violence so in this context how do you see what feminist mothering is and especially and how do you link it with the things that you talk about in violator so i should actually flag and say that my work on fe- feminist mothering is much more about what goes inside goes on inside the heads of women who are feminist who have either by a quirk of fate become or chosen to be parents 
so it's not so much about practices of feminist mothering but but how they na- navigate uh, the world as feminists and as mothers so i'm not sure i entirely have an Uh, a, a researched answer to your question so i should flag that i mean there are probably many people who who are be- better equipped to respond to your question and and the question on sexuality education is one that i learned a great deal from from a former phd student of mine uh, called ketki chachaukani who did a fabulous phd uh, dissertation looking at what she called the limits of sexuality education and she mounts really a very interesting critique of the different kinds of available sexuality education and and also and also sort of makes a case for learning include from a variety of sources including from pornography so it's a really cutting edge and exciting dissertation that she's been writing sort of publishing from um i i do endorse entirely what you're saying that we do need an open conversation and sexuality education is one of the ways in which that conversation is opened up in regard to questions of of consent for example and that's that's something that we need to talk about a great deal um coming to your i mean and this is something i think this question of risk or how to keep your daughter safe and 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 a lot of the work a lot of my research has been on uh, via interviewing feminist mothers of daughters you know and, and one of the things that uh, that i think many many uh, mothers struggle with is that how do you provide your daughters with both agency and yet at the same time because uh, because that's how you feel how how do you at the same time quote and quote keep them keep them safe and i think here one needs to say say in the strongest possible terms that women are not women's worst enemy that at at best what we might see as patriarchal uh, dictates or patriarchal ideas coming out uh, sort of articulated by women uh, are our ways in which uh, women have learned to navigate their own lives in a patriarchal world and they they feel that that's what they're teaching their daughters to do they may they may not be right and it may not be the best thing for their daughters and their daughters increasingly and i think it's great their daughters are increasingly telling them that they are wrong you know and and i think that that's wonderful that that space that daughters have and that daughters carve out sometimes they 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 struggle to carve that space for themselves to say that you're wrong but i don't think that older women are are doing this uh, uh in the service of patriarchy i think they are trying to teach lessons they feel they have learned about how to navigate patriarchy and and those lessons may no longer work i mean they may not work for younger women and younger women i feel like have have the space and the gumption and they are doing it they are telling they are telling older women that that it's wrong and but i think that we need to say it many many times that women are not women's worst enemies that you know that certainly uh, mothers are not in the most for the best part and for the in most cases are not are not our worst enemies in any way um yeah coming back to uh, i'm trying to think what was your central question there i got sort of uh, way laid uh, sorry i asked you three four questions in one go i just Yes yes that was uh, uh no it was essentially that i think i i just wanted to know your experiences in 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 feminist mothering and how it sort of links to how do you raise girls and children in a society like this in cities like ours because on one hand because there is there are these these are the logics that operate i mean i just wanted to yeah. because when you were talking about this i realized like you said 10 years ago you've written a book and in some ways things nothing seems to have changed i often feel this way when i go back home it's like i left home 10 years ago while i went to college and when i lived ho- at home again a couple of years ago i felt like i had changed so much but my world at home hadn't changed my home didn't change my society there didn't change and it also gave me a lot of sympathy for my mother in the things that she was telling me because i realized that when i behave in the ways that uh, that uh, that are in tune to my understanding i was not listening to the comments of the locality my mother was it was about she is a bad mother because her daughter is out of control not my father but my mother and somewhere that kind of system where mothers are under so much pressure because it's not like that they have to survive their daughters are a reflection of them and so i was just curious to hear the struggles that you face maybe as an individual both living in a society like this and trying to be feminist in the way that you parent um so 
again sort of speaking to the example or the the the, the sort of the b- 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 to, to 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 respond to the example you you offered uh, I, I recent well in the last two years i did a sort of a, a small research project talking to single women uh, about their conversations and their relationships with their families in regard to uh, the question of marriage so marriage talk i called it ma- ma- marriage talk and a lot of women talked about the ways in which their relationships with their mothers transformed over the years of that marriage talk and how much flack their mothers exactly like you're saying in terms of what you wear your mother would hear about it also in terms of if young women refuse to marry then their mothers are bad mothers for not convincing them to marry so if a mother said what to do she's not interested so somebody else would say if it was my daughter i would lock her up and insist she got married tacitly indicating that you're a bad mother you can't control your daughter you're not able to bring your daughter to heal and eventually what you're doing is bad for your daughter because you know it's good for your daughter to marry and produce 2.2 children or whatever you know so so mothers do get a lot of flack yes. speaking <laughs> speaking about myself my daughter's 10 so i think that maybe my my struggles with a certain kind of parenting are only beginning but i think that one of the things that i encountered when she was very little was uh, was being seen as an a social parent because my every time my daughter refused to go to somebody i would say that she doesn't want to come to you or she doesn't want to hug you or she's not going to do that or and i would be seen as an a social parent you know as an unfriendly parent as someone who didn't want to share my child but it was simply my being respectful of the space that my child wanted you know and i think that one of the things we need to teach our children is that they deserve space even from us so even now sometimes if i go to hug my the daughter she say i don't want to be hugged and my responsibility at that moment is not to demonstrate hurt not to say oh you don't hug want do you don't love me because that's the worst possible thing i can do because what i'm doing is i'm setting up a scenario then where some if she's heterosexual or whatever if some man will be able to tell her 10 years down the line that if you don't sleep with me you don't love me you know so if i say yes you don't want to be hugged that's your right and i don't think that if you don't want to hug me you don't love me or it's an expression of your love for me or an expression of your feelings for me it's simply what you feel at this moment and that your body is entirely yours i feel like that's something you know because instinctively even in a joking manner your instinct is to say oh you don't want to cuddle me why don't you want to cuddle me and i feel like it's an instinct we need to suppress it's a moment at which you it's a teaching moment for yourself it's a learning moment for oneself to recognize that by uh, respecting your child's bodily boundaries you remind your child that e- their body is sacrosanct even from the people closest to them even from the people who have changed their nappies when they were little children their bodies are sacrosanct and that nobody yeah. not even their parent has the right to demand affection from them in any way the other struggles that that women have talked to me about also are about sort of you know i mean this is something that all of us engage with as feminists right what do you do with your own struggles with say or your own attitudes to body hair to body fat like how how do you how do you avoid saying i'm on a diet like you know you know if you're on if you i mean as many of us have been taught to be concerned about weight uh increasingly we are taught to be concerned about weight not just as an aesthetic issue but as a health issue right constantly you're being told that you should lose weight yes. for your for your health so so some of the struggles that women articulated was that how do they not how do they talk about their bodies in a way uh with their children uh in a way that does not uh you know lead their children to 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 be uh to have slow self esteem or to have body issues or you know and these are struggles that feminists have because even as we intellectually understand something we don't always practice it right you may shave your legs you may do all kinds of you know Absolutely. you may be in in uh, you may be practicing yeah. things that you yourself intellectually know are sort of you know yeah on the on the yeah. cusp of you know uh sort of so so yeah i think these are mm. and and of course i think one of the questions is how do you recognize your child as a person with agency right because quite often and and this i i say it tongue in cheek but i think it's true that as 
feminists, we train our children to see themselves as people with agency. And you want your children to fight the world, but you want them to fight the whole world, but not you. It's like, don't turn these arguments on me. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, so, so you teach your child yeah. to be deeply critical. And the first person they're going to practice it on is you. And, and that's the moment at which you have to, you have to realize yeah. that, that, you know, you've, uh, and, and of course, there, 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 yeah. there's a book that's coming out very soon by a scholar named Sonora Jha, which is called How to Raise a Feminist Son. And I think it's really important for us to, and this is something that many people have been saying, right? How do we raise boys? And I think that it yeah. is at one level far more difficult to raise a feminist boy than it is to raise a feminist girl. Because as the mother of a daughter, my daughter can already see at the age of 10 that there is that there is a gender discrimination at work. She can see it. And it is, of course, in her interest to be a feminist. Yeah. But if I'm raising a boy, how do yeah. you get your child to recognize privilege? So, for instance, it's far more difficult for me to get my child to see caste privilege than it is for me to get her to see gender discrimination. Because as a girl, she is on the margins and she sees it. But as an upper caste person, she does not see caste. So, again, I feel like the responsibility yeah. is so much more to teach our children about their privilege, to teach them about class privilege, to teach them about caste privilege. And if you are raising boys, then to teach them about gender privilege. And I think it's far more difficult to do. And one of the ways we do it is to go on having conversations and to go on pointing it out and hope that, you know, hope that they see it. Uh, to also point out privilege of gender yeah. in, in the ways that, you know, uh, being cisgender is a privilege. You know, to to feel at home in the body uh, to which a certain sex has been assigned. You know, so if you're a person and I tell my daughter this, if you're a person who is assigned sex female at birth and you feel at home in that definition and in that body, that's a privilege too, absolutely. because not everyone feels it. No, absolutely. That is, I mean, that is so important. And I think, yeah, and, and I feel like that actually is how we we then become, I mean, we talk about political citizenship or empathetic citizenship. It all starts at home, right? Like being able to sort of notice it in our immediacy rather than fight someone else's struggles. We all practice caste. We all practice, you know, these kinds of issues. I will I will leave you with two last questions. The, the, the question that I think that was coming up to me while you were describing this, whether it's body image, whether it's, you know, the, these struggles that we all face. And we've touched upon this. Is this the consumption that the the capitalist uh, paradigms of development that that seems to be the sole uh, model of development in the country anymore. Now, any, every time we talk about the city and urban development, we all want to be Singapore or New York. We don't want to be Bangalore or Mumbai. And then even then we see that the we, we are all, it's almost like then, then, when I was reading about uh, urban planning, I was reading about all of these critiques that feminist geographers were making in these cities that we want to emulate. And it's almost like we're importing these problems without with this uncritical assumption around development. And and another thing that's also happening in um in, in, in this kind of model is there is this privatization of management of parks. In Bangalore, for instance, parks are not open during the day. They're only open during, you know, specific times in the morning, specific times in the evening. And this is led by civic activist groups. It's actually citizens, but your middle class, you know, the kind of uncles and aunties. <laughs> I I feel like I've uh, experienced in the resident welfare associations in my home where I live. So, like... I mean, I, I wanted you to sort of, because the, the, the last question was about feminist imagination, but I wanted to sort of, the last before question I wanted to focus on is, how do, how does one resist that when there is such the privatization of public space to the point where there are no open public spaces, where everything has to be paid for? So we can't even go to a park anymore without being sold to. There are advertisements in our park benches, where, where there are park benches, which are few and far bet between. So, we are a captive, consumptive audience and we are only supposed to be consuming or being sold, you know, or being sold to. So, and, 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 and how surveillance now with data and data being the new, you know, uh, uh, the entity that has to be monetized constantly. Um, what does, 
what do individual women especially in times like covid where we can't step out what can we do what are our what are individual roles in both the patriot fighting the paternalism as well as neoliberal capitalism which you know uh, feeds into that kind of structure wow that's a whole lot of multiple multiple questions and very complex questions uh, and great questions um so to partially respond to perhaps only some of them that what you're saying is absolutely right there is a deeply deeply exclusionary agenda at work here right and into 2003 4 5 when we were doing our research parks didn't actually close in the afternoon in bombay now they close in the afternoon in bombay as well and i think the one of the things we need to make uh, uh make a case for is really parks without fences you know one that that is open accessible and and as we articulate in in our book the most accessible and the friendliest and in many ways a very safe park is the shivaji park in 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 bombay which is in fact one of the very few parks that only has a low katta wall around it it doesn't have a fence and in fact it is it is among the most friendly spaces for all kinds of people to be so i think that we do need to to talk about it but uh, to sort of respond in a in a tangential way to your question is that after we wrote the book a lot of people would ask us uh, but how are you going to operationalize loitering and we would sort of you know not always know how to answer because here was a vision we had it was at one level a conceptual vision at in many ways it was a utopian idea of how we imagine the city to be a city that was inclusive a city in which different kinds of people could be as citizens and be recognized as citizens but in 2014 a uh, 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 theater artist by the name of neha singh well actually she's a she's a writer and theater artist and many other things by the name of neha singh re- read our book and uh, along with a group of women she began loitering in the city and she grew what she called the why loiter movement which then i think was taken up in other parts of the city and one of the things i've learned from her is that these everyday acts of claiming and she'd say they'd be walking late at night you know sometimes and in small groups so it was not a take back the night march you know there'd be two of them or three of them or five of them at most you know and she'd say a kindly rickshaw guy would stop and say madam i will take you home please don't walk on the street and then they would start a conversation with the rickshaw guy saying but we don't want to go in the rickshaw we want to walk on the road you know or with a police person who would stop them and say the same thing you know in a benevolent way also or or mm. they would then encounter some as you pointed some uncle type who's been um, masturbating at them on the road and they would pick out their phones and say uncle we will make you famous uh, on social media and uncle would promptly zip himself up you know so she said that these everyday acts of claiming transformed her embodied experience with the city and i feel like many many young women whether it's the violator movement or the blank noise project or the girls at dabas in pakistan or you know i think many young women are actually responding to this question of how to claim the public they are very they are they are niche and they are small ways of claiming the public but at in in a very fundamental way they challenge the neoliberal agenda they challenge this idea that when you are out in public you must consume in order to be productive right that when you are in public you should be drinking 200 rupees yeah. worth of coffee in order to be a good consumer and a good global capitalist citizen a good neoliberal citizen this idea which is of anti productivity of being on the streets and doing nothing and i feel like the uh, pandemic has raised this question even in our homes right because now many of us are working from home and so the pressure to constantly be productive so what does it mean to be non productive you know i think questions of productivity are something that we we really need to address ourselves too and and for people of my generation we also grew up in a time uh, a, so 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 I, so i was a child in the 1980s when there was a category and i often tell this to my students called conspicuous consumption and conspicuous consumption was a bad thing right you lived in a world of great inequality and if you consumed too much if you appeared to have too much it was considered very bad form it was considered uh, obscene almost you know because there were so many people who didn't have enough and the yeah. state took responsibility for housing the state took 
responsibility. But now if you're poor, it's your fault, right? Neoliberalism has transformed that. Uh, and people are no longer ashamed to consume. They are no longer ashamed to spend crores, hundreds of crores on a wedding, uh, having Beyonce dance at your wedding, if you like, and publicizing how much you paid or, you know, uh, there's, there's no shame in that anymore. Yeah. And I think that all of these issues are tied to the question of access to the public because the public somehow has been erased from our imagination. And I, but I do think that young people are pushing these agendas. Uh, and I think that we are also pushing these agendas when we claim our rights as citizens, because increasingly not just the right to recreation, but the right to protest in public is also being taken away from us. Earlier, you would be stuck in little small spaces. Now you're being, uh, if you look at the far, far, if you look at the farmers, movement and as i'm sure you've seen the kind of barricades that were created to prevent them from in entering delhi city right so you have spikes yeah. and you yes. have barricades yes. and, yeah. and you have construction and you're digging up roads to prevent them i mean how afraid are you of a protesting citizen right uh, and what what does that tell us and i feel yeah. like today more than ever we need to connect all of these agendas because uh, even as they are coming for our rights of as citizens they are coming for our rights as women as well and and i think it's really really important for us to as to where we can loiter i find more and more people now loitering online uh and i feel like again there have been there have been accusations of sort of neoliberalism made and certainly there is a divide a digital divide in who can loiter how much online uh but there is also a divide on who can loiter how much in public space and i feel like we also and 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 we've sort of there's there's stalking happening online there's violence happening online and sort of the spaces, online spaces in many ways replicate our relationships in public space in on the city streets, right? Women are told, don't post anything because once you post it out there, it's there to stay. And there's there's a fabulous essay by a scholar called Wendy, Wendy Chun and Sarah Friedland. It's called Habits of Leaking, which, you know, which tell women that which I mean, one of the things they argue is that women are constantly told to be afraid of the public. And and what's very exciting is also they make use of our work on loitering to make a case for loitering online. So I feel like until we can loiter in public spaces, mm. uh, one of the spaces that I think many women have found to loiter is online, which of course is not a substitute for real public spaces. And And the question you raise about I feel like we really need to pay a lot of attention to how to reclaim the gains that we have made in access to the public when when the cities open up and when our towns open up and when we are on the other side, hopefully not too, in the not too distant future, when we are on the other side of this pandemic. And I think it's a question that we have to keep asking so that we don't forget. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you. I mean, that was... Uh, I mean, it's such a pleasure listening to you uh, talk about this. And it also reminded me that it was not just in Bombay. Like when I was working in Hyderabad, me and a feminist colleague of mine, we would go to Irani cafes in Hyderabad. Hyderabad is littered with these beautiful Irani cafes. But one thing that happens is there's great chai and it's so affordable. And it's almost a space of leisure because nobody tells you in an Irani cafe to get up and leave. Like you can buy one chai for 10 bucks and sit there for five hours. You don't have, like, it, unlike your Starbucks, there's no plug point or a laptop, but you can sit with a newspaper and you see all of these old men, everybody, um, you know, but it was always male dominated. And what we would do after work is just spend every time we wanted to stand or sit and talk somewhere, we would go to, in a, in a, go to an Irani cafe and sit down. And I've realized that that doesn't exist. I mean, I've not quite seen as many or any Irani cafes where I live in Bangalore. But to me in Hyderabad, that was that was just so special because suddenly it was cheap. I didn't have to spend 200 bucks in a place when I had one or two other female friends to sit with and just, I don't know, enjoy a cup of tea and chat. And and as you also talked about, even rest is a form of resistance, right? When you talked about unproductivity and, and, and rest is resistance is also, I think, a movement that Black feminists in the US and across places talk about. It's like, how do we then just taking care of our bodies and our minds in a way that 
is 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 just a resistance to capitalism itself and it's 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 really interesting because all of these things tie down to this question of a feminist imagination i titled this podcast the feminist city precisely after you know utopia and the first episode talks about sultana's dream and when people ask what is a feminist city i say it's a dream because i think we can only become more and more feminist but i don't know if there would be i don't even know what it would look like when we were trying to sort of come up with illustrations to depict a feminist city both me and the other illustrator we were completely stumped because we were like what what does it look like one thing i was like oh maybe it'll have a lot more mirrors because you know i want to see what i'm wearing at different places or it would have more bathrooms and this process also also sort of made me realize how much how disconnected we are from the body and our planet as well because on one hand um I never noticed how I don't drink water before I step out. Like a lot of women don't drink water before they go out because uh, bathrooms are not available. So when women are working in the streets, where are women relieving themselves? It's it's almost like it's not even a question. Like 50% of the city's population cannot do the most human function and when we're menstruating there are all of these questions. And I guess the question that I wanted to ask you is how does one cultivate and nurture a feminist imagination like what do we what do you, because i think you've been doing this for such a long time uh if you could leave our listeners with that i would be yeah that would be great yeah i mean i think it's again a fabulous question and i'm not sure that people don't have a feminist imag- imagination i feel like when i see young women my students when i see the work that you are doing when i see the the kind of work that that young women are engaged in today and the kind of activism it it seems to me that young women and young men and well many young women and some young men have a feminist imagination that they are actually putting to very good use the moment the historical moment at which we find ourselves in in some ways makes it very very hard to for us to imagine a utopia right uh, for now many of us at least certainly people my age would settle for a semblance of democracy even 2011 when our book was published in retrospect feels almost a bit utopian if you like you know but uh, to speak of a feminist city or or what we might imagine as a utopia i feel like one of the things we need to think about in terms of cultivating a f- f- feminist imagination is to recognize that a feminist imagination in relation to the city is deeply tied to questions of infrastructure you know the kinds of things that you pointed out very like when you were talking about a utopian city you talked about toilets and i think that toilets are so so central to the recognition or the right to citizenship right that if you have a toilet uh, every 500 meters well lit clean open 24/7 it sends a very very different me- message to to people that people belong in the city that the city has uh, provisions for them so also with tra- transport you know uh, transport 24/7 one of the things the delhi government promised and i think they've only done it so far for buses not for the metro is free transport and i think for women and one of the reasons i think people were so anxious about it is that now women could potentially walk out of their houses without any money and they could get from point a to point b right so this kind of anxiety so i think like 24/7 transport uh railway stations and bus stops that are well lit bus stops with seating uh bus stops that are close to each other or parks that have no fences that parks don't have that don't have uh walls um e- even like 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 you were saying you know promenades or pa- parts of the city that middle class citizens seek to sort of uh, control you know in many of these promenades you can't eat or drink i feel like opening up those to hawkers where you have hawkers offering affordable food as well as eyes on the street their lights contribute to the the lighting restaurants that are open for longer and longer hours because the the city that's awake at night somehow is uh, is a city that's more accessible that that many many people uh, that many more people are are comfortable 
in, you know. So I, I, I realize I'm somehow digressing and talking about a feminicity. But to go back to your question on the, I'm, I am concerned about infrastructure and the feminicity because I think it involves a lot of petitioning on our part of state structures. But I feel far, far less concerned about a feminist imagination. I feel really that like that young people are are have a deeply democratic and feminist imagination and i feel like it's the when i when i hear young people speak when i see young people in pro protests and la, 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 last year when we were at the the anti ca protests when i heard young people speak it was among the few times that i felt i felt real hope i feel like young people do have a democratic and feminist imagination and i i feel that it's hopeful yeah. No, that is that's a wonderful. Thank you so much. It is it is truly hopeful. I think uh, even as you were speaking, I in the report that I wrote for uh, my organization, this is exactly what we sort of focus on. And when we turn a feminist lens to the city, it is an infrastructure question. And then it's also locating a constitutional right to the city, right? I think when we locate a constitutional right to the city, what does it mean for a woman's right to the city, for a queer person's right to the city, for a girl's right to the city, and that then requires the shift of feminist intervention in municipal laws and urban planning laws rather than criminal law which you know with its carcerality is actually a double edged sword in terms of affecting or protecting or just securing rights for women and i think uh yeah this was i mean i can talk to you until the cows come home so i this was actually a fabulous conversation thank you so much shilpa if you have anything else you'd like to add please uh, feel free to go ahead yes. no no it was great to talk to you and 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 i i listened to the other episodes of your podcast and really i mean your your podcast and others like them are among the things that give one hope for for this city and for this country so thank you for the work you do